From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, it's Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode, and you're really in for a treat, not only is this man one of the world's foremost drummers, he's one of its foremost storytellers. I'm really keen to get this going, so Simon Phillips. Hey Simon, thanks for joining me. Good morning. This is very exciting for me. Been uh, really looking forward to this conversation. So, as one of the world's best drummers, and I think I say that safely, <laughs> can you tell us how it got started? Well, how did you, you? I know a little background that you grew up in the business. Your dad was a Dixieland band leader. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up in a in a loud household. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, well, let's start with my, my father. He, um, uh, he was quite an old father. He was 49 when I was born. So, and remember, 49-year-olds in the 50s were really like 69-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, it's, I it's think very if you look at some of these, 20-year-olds are like 40-year-olds old yeah. if you look at some of these photos. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is uh, how, the, how the world has changed, you know, how the human has changed, I, said, I, I should say, evolved. He um, started his career off in, uh, in the 20s, and he had his first band in 1925 called the Melodians, which was probably one of the first jazz bands in existence, certainly in England. Yeah. Um, he loved uh, American music, uh, and really, that's. I guess it grew into Dixieland, but it was a very basic form, very kind of straight form of jazz at the time. And uh, if you think of people like, uh, you know, Big Spiderbeck and Louis Armstrong, um, and a host of other, you know, yeah. Paul, Paul Whiteman, um, they were playing this um, real straight for music, which in some ways you could equate to when rock and roll came in in the 60s because it was straight four, yeah. basic groove, you know, but obviously it sounded different. And you can imagine a time when um, the the bass, the double bass, was actually meant to be played with a bow. Oh, yeah. It's the bass viol. But um, they started plucking it, which is technically called pizzicato. Yeah, like but pizzicato. it sounded great. Um, of course, in uh, uh, New Orleans, um, the bass was actually a, a tuba. Oh, is that, that right? Yeah. yeah, it actually, and uh, or a sousaphone, or any, any one of those large, you know, uh, caliber <laughs> brass instruments. Yeah. Um, so, and but in order to get a gig, you had to have a string quartet. That because, was just the requirement. Yeah, because promoters would be worried that yeah. the public would just run out if there wasn't a string quartet. So yeah, well, to, at this time, that was like the dance hall culture, yes. right? Like every seaside resort would have the yep. pavilions and the yep. dance halls. And I know yeah. the Beatles were definitely influenced by that. You hear a lot of that. Oh, everybody. I mean, it, it comes through. It comes through the music. So, But, um, but jazz, just to go back a little bit, it's like the first really truly american art form yes people have said that yeah how did your dad get exposed to that do you have any you know any I recollection know. Or memory he, of that? He, he had um three other brothers they all picked up instruments 
and uh, he was the second to youngest, and he picked up the clarinet. Oh, nice. Um, and then went on to the other instruments, baritone, alto. Um, uh, yeah, strange. I, I don't really know. Of course, you know, I can't ask him anymore, but um, mm. I'm much more interested now than I was back you know, when I was yeah. young, of course. You wish you would have been able to go back and oh, get those yeah. ins- But there are psychics in town. Maybe they can open a town. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, that. so that's the... The, the start of his career yeah. his career took him uh, all through uh, up he was in he was in New York in the late 30s um, and he was also uh, in those days when you toured you would go to a country and you'd have a residency for six months is this like a visa requirement or or something or, or just like the no, typical just the way industry the standard back yeah. then. and he used to tour Germany in the 30s Hmm. And um, he would have six months in Berlin, and they'd have six months in München, and then six months in, you know, Koblenz or wherever it is. Um, and, uh, of course, as you can imagine, that was a very interesting time. Yeah. And that's where he learned to speak German and, uh, and various other languages, and uh, then went to the States. And then, of course, the war came along, and he came back, and he dropped out of music, went into uh, the RAF. And uh, and then back out in in the late forties, he was demobbed, and then uh, he became his dance band became very famous in England in the fifties. Yeah. Until this band came along, who was managed by my dad's agent. Um. Um. Oh God, I forgot. I'm Brian Epstein. Oh yes. And the, the, uh, the quarrymen. Yep. And he uh, that he was uh, he was doing a, a gig. These, these cheeky cheeky lads. These cheeky lads. And my dad said, "So uh, they were having an after gig drink." I said, "So what's uh, what's new with you?" And well, I'm managing some young lads, four young lads from Liverpool. <laughs> and so, and my dad, being very old fashioned, said, "Well, can they play?" <laughs> and Brian kind of, kind of looked at him and went. Well, n- not in the way that you would accept. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they were the Beatles, and yeah. uh, it kind of changed actually for all the band leaders of my dad's. They all wanted generation. that. They all wanted that. Well, no, they were a lot of, were put out of work. Yeah, they lost a lot of. Uh, you know, so because anyway. all the venues were wanting to schedule this this newfangled. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and this is when everything started changing. Um, and then I came along. And I'm, I'm dragged into studios in BBC studios in London, even, uh, even before I was born, actually, because my mom was, uh, she was also, uh, in the army during the war and, uh, uh, played a little bit of piano, a little bit of drums. Oh. And, uh, she was a, a an amateur musician, but mm-hmm. she could play a piano and she had a pretty good knowledge of music theory. So my yeah, dad. The circle of fists. Yeah, my dad taught her how to copy. Yeah, which meant when he wrote a score of a new arrangement, instead of him writing out the banjo part, the bass part, the drum part, the, the trumpet, you know, B flat trumpet, E flat alto, you know, he would just give it to her, and she'd do all the charts. Mm. So she'd have to come to the sessions to dish out all the the music to the musicians, yeah. and of course, if there were any mistakes, God help her. 
my dad, oh, he was, he was, you know, he, like he was I a said, perfectionist. He was, you know, Victorian kind of ideals, yeah. and uh, those guys, they were, you know, um, Artie Shaw, Buddy Rich, um, you know, they were all really tough. Yeah, and uh, so um, that's how I got dragged around, and then I was, you know, became alive and. Walking. So that was just the water that you were you were swimming in. Mm-hmm. The vibrations of uh, hearing a big, well, a nine-piece jazz band in a studio. Yeah. It was amazing. So, and then in the house, my dad decided to uh, uh, rehearse the band. And where where were you living in? I was living in this, don't laugh, this uh, lovely little, just this little village just outside of London called Bushy Heath. Bushy Heath. Bushy uh-huh. Heath. <laughs> it's near Watford. And you may have heard of Watford Football Club, which Rich yeah. Dwight, you know, Elton John supports, and because he's from there, he's from yeah. that same area. Is that outside the Ring Road? Uh, are you talking about the North Circular? Yeah, four or six, not the M25. I'm trying to remember now. I I lived off the A where the A11 and the A45 came together in East Anglia near Thetford. Oh. oh yeah. So that was you know he used to live there. Yeah, it was there, Hargett House and. Barton Mills. I used to live R. in R.E.F. Meldenhall. Yeah, I used to live in Bewers, which is near Colchester. Okay. Right in the same area, East Anglia. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, Cambridge would be like the, our okay. city. Yes, right. That would yeah. be the closest. Yeah, a little bit further west. Well, there's also Newmarket there with the yep. National. National. Grand National. Yeah. 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 Wow. Very, very horse. Very fancy in Newmarket. Yeah, 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 a lot of lot of wealth in those oh, in horse flesh. In yeah. horse, yes, absolutely. Um, well, then you're talking. I think you're talking about the M25, which is yeah. the orbital road that goes all the way around London, which was only completed in 80, 83, 84, probably. Yeah, that was right when I yeah. was there. Um, no, a little bit actually, not far from it. A little yeah. bit inside, but it was considered. It was a, the county is Hertfordshire, yeah. so it was considered. Uh, I guess. Suburbs, but in those days it was like a village. It was amazing. yeah, it was lovely. Suburbs had not really been, even been a thing until well after the war. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, did your dad? Where did he grow up? I mean, how did he? He cause... grew up in London. Uh, I think uh, East London actually. So he was very, you know, very working class and uh, yeah. managed to uh, you know do well in the uh, in in the music business at a at a very young yeah. age. Um, he became a, a writer for the arranger for a, a, a dance band called Bert Ambrose. Hmm. Who, people of that era would, would well, know. Yeah, it's it a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, he went to New York and he was a, a staff writer for Chapel and then became uh, the arranger for Paul Whiteman. Wow. So, yeah, he did a, he achieved a lot, but he always. Uh, did you feel any pressure to go into the business or were you just drawn to it? Was it just you okay, were surrounded so by it? So it just felt like uh, I had no choice, uh, but, yeah. but it wasn't, there was no pressure at all. Once I had heard the band rehearsing and he, he got a, a new drummer, young drummer called Dave Rogers, and he had turned the band round. They were just rehearsing in our, in our living room. Yeah. It was big enough to put, it had a piano in. And, and I walked in at three years old. And bumped into a beautiful Ludwig drum kit. And it was love at first sight. That was it. I, I mean, remember, I'm only this high. I'm, yeah. I'm below the height of the hi-hat. And I'm seeing the hi-hat cymbals yeah. going like this. I'm seeing the bass drum pedal do this. And that, what we, in, in the music business, and drummers will say, the Ludwig 400 superphonic snare drum is one of the most 
most recorded snare drums yeah. in the world. Like every pop single in the in the fifties and sixties probably had that snare drum on. Yeah, it's a it's just a it's a mainstay. And just seeing it, this shiny chrome, mm. and and the, the way he tuned it, and that was it. You were was, you were done. You I were was done, done for. And it was a question really of looking at my watch that had years on it. Yeah, and it was only. 1960. I had to wait till 1969 or 70 before I could, you know, go professional or something. And you were 12 years old, and you were a professional musician. Yeah, 1969. Yeah. yeah, that is amazing. Really, a prodigy, or it, just like you know, I had a friend of mine who's a classical guitar player, and he said the only difference between Mozart and other six-year-olds who don't write symphonies is that <laughs> Mozart's dad made him practice four hours a day. You know, or actually six hours a day, but you get the point. That, yeah, but that but was it's the never... uh, ta- it's the native talent versus the diligence and the work. It was also though just aside from all that, it was uh, my dad didn't want me to be a musician. Oh, really? No, absolutely not. Because it wasn't the he just was afraid of you getting into the life. Yeah, it's a rough business. Yeah, because you you're on the road all the time. Uh, it's not very secure. Yeah. And uh, in, in England, especially post-war, I mean, we could, a lot of people couldn't travel, just couldn't afford to travel. Yeah. Um, even when I first traveled, which would have been 1974, you were only allowed to take 200 pounds with you out of the country. And it was written into the back of your passport. I mean, that's almost yeah. like being in Russia. It is very much. It's, I remember how the... Yeah, how that how odd I found that because two hundred pounds and when I was there that was like three hundred bucks. That's not that much. Well, in the in seventy four, when were you there? It's eighty two, eighty five. Right. Okay, actually, so almost four years. Back in the seventies, it was uh, ooh, three or four uh, dollars to the pound. Yeah, it was pretty. It was different. It but almost still. got to parity while I was there, so I was being paid in U.S. dollars, and oh, I was yeah. living high off the hog. Oh yeah, it, it's it's amazing how. Archaic it was, really arcane. Yeah. Um, but there was just, uh, no, he didn't want me to become a musician and have the musician's life, but my mom did. Oh, yeah. And here's how it really happened. I grew up playing his music because I played along to records. Yeah. As well as playing along to the Beatles, Dave Brubeck, the Kinks. I mean, I just played to anything. Yeah. And learned to play all these different styles of music, I guess. Um, by the late 60s, the problem was most drummers in England didn't want to play that music. Didn't want to play Dixieland? Dixieland. Well, it's really dance music. It's Dixieland dance music. It's not yeah. as free form as Dixieland. It's also typically for Dixieland, you would have a trombone, trumpet, and a clarinet as your front line. But he had a bigger front line. He had a tenor. He had alto. Uh, doubling on a baritone, trumpet, trombone, and clarinets. That's five horns. Yeah. So kind of technically it doesn't really work in Dixieland because you have to be arranged. There has to be charts. So it was a very particular type of music. I mean, actually, I mean, I mean, I hated it at one point, but now I absolutely, I really dig it. the discipline of it? Well, it was was very old-fashioned. Yeah. That's all it was, really. But... The one thing I could do with no experience, I knew how to play his music. Mm-hmm. And most of the drummers that he got then 
unless he was in um, a BBC recording studio where you could afford to get the A-level session guys who, yeah. yes, they could play that. But generally when you're gigging, you can't afford to, you know, those guys. And then, anyway, they probably wouldn't want to do it. They want to just sit in the studios. And they couldn't play it. Yeah. And he would come home at, you know, three or four in the morning and be in a terrible mood. And my mom, one day in, I guess it was 1969, she just had enough. She said, okay, enough. You have a great drummer here in, in, in this house. Wow. And he said, oh, don't be ridiculous. He's 12 years old. He said, he can play your music. Yeah. Give him the experience. And that's how it, it happened. So uh, it was a very fortunate thing to happen. My goodness. I know. I was I had to be taken out of the school I was in because I was at a prep school. It was a boarding school. They wouldn't allow me to do that. No. And I, ha I went through a very interesting, from a social point of view, um, schooling from a British preparatory school, which is, you know. With the uh, uniforms. Upper, upper and, middle class, yeah. you know, lots of long words. And, and uh, well, we all wore Latin. uniforms. Yeah. Oh, I was studying, of course, Latin. I was about to start learning Greek the next uh, term. And then wow. I, had, I was shoved into a what would have been called a grammar school. Yeah. Uh, where I was two years ahead educationally. So a 12-year-old who's sitting in a class, by the way, with 35 other children, not 12. That's a big difference. And mixed. Yeah. Boys and girls. I mean, it, yeah. it's quite a change. And then, oh, I did this two years ago. Well, what does a t most 12 year, what do most 12 year olds do? Nothing. <laughs> yes, well, whatever they can get away with. Oh, absolutely. But I was leaving every Thursday afternoon, yeah. Friday afternoon to go home, pack my drum kit up, get my dinner jacket on and boat how big, uh, how many, how big was your kit? Oh, it was this traditional four piece kit. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my dad wouldn't, he, he, well, he had to put it in his car. Yeah. And it was, it was, my dad would drive. Next to him was my bass drum and floor tom. In the back seat was the trumpet player, uh, the baritone player, and me. And in the trunk was everything else. Yeah. Baritone, alto, clarinet, trumpet, all the music stands, the rest of my drum kit. So, so this, for yeah. the size of cars, if people don't know in England, you know, it's much, much smaller in those... You know, those... He had to get probably the largest. Saloons. Yeah. He actually yeah. looked at a Rambler once. Yeah. I, I was really excited. Wow, big American car. That'd be great. But he settled on a Ford Zephyr, um, which was quite a large, you know, it was yeah. quite a large. It, it, it managed. It, it was How fun. fun. So mm. everywhere in England then, you were going around the north and did you go into Scotland and... Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. And... Um, it was, uh, I mean, obviously I don't know any different, but um, the first school, I lasted two terms. It just didn't work. I was, yeah. you know, uh, so um, series of events. My dad met a teacher who was at another school who was a keen ballroom dancer. And uh, they met, I don't know how they met, but and he said, bring him to this school. He'll be much happier. Yes, yeah. it's not as quite as high educationally, but more this, flexible, this will work. Yeah. And the kids, they were great. They, the other yeah. place they didn't really understand, but there again, I was going through that change of survival from having to even change the way I spoke. 
Yeah. Why, yeah. Were you getting uh, roughed okay. up because of too, too, they thought you were a little too fancy, a little, little too posh? A little too fancy, used you know, words that maybe they yeah. would normally not use. You know, take the so you had to uh, adapt to the milieu. <clears throat> and my mom was, was, she came from a, you know, a, a fairly, you know, well-to-do Scottish family. So yeah. she sounded like the queen, basically. That's exactly how she talked. Oh, there's so many accents in England. And it's all, <laughs> the class distinctions are oh, yeah. granular. Yeah. You can tell where, right the strata where somebody fits in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's especially back then. Yeah, you know. I still think some now, but <clears throat> although you do hear a lot of posh people speaking with like Geordie accents and such yeah. to make them sound yeah. more authentic or working class. Well, <clears throat> if you think of television, entertainment, BBC, back then um, you had <clears throat> you had that very typical BBC mm -hmm. uh, upper class uh, accent, and then it started to plummy. change. It yeah. started to change, and as that changed, I think every everything changed. Of course, it's going to. But it was funny because I would leave the the, the house. <laughs> I would leave the house and walk uh, down the driveway, and, and then I'd uh, come out of the gates and I'd turn right onto the pavement and then start speaking like this. Right? Yeah. Hello. All right. Got Tanner. Mm -hmm. You know, just for Ta survival. Literally. Yeah. Wow. So, what did you, um, you know, how did your peers think of you being out on the road? Was there like some some esteem that went along with that, or were they resentful, or some mix of both? Well, you know, <clears throat> there's two uh, scenarios. One are the kids, the other are the teachers. Yeah. So my dad and this other teacher, who was the, the uh, ballroom dancer, they were very clever. They put on a, a, a ball at mm. the school. In which you could in which I was show in off your talent. So something. all the teachers are there and, and they're dancing and they go, oh. And then he would say, yeah, he's actually going to come to school next time. So they actually saw me in a professional scenario. Yeah. Only all of them were great apart from two. Yeah. And those two were kind of had a little thing to Mrs. Jeff Miss Jeffries, who was the maths teacher. And I don't remember who the... Geography teachers, well, and they were awful. <laughs> they were just awful. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else was so cool. The kids, actually, they were all cool because the thing about, as I think we all discover, think about school, sports. If you are good at a sport, you're going to be fine. Yeah. The two uh, terms that I went to the first school were the two winter terms football. Yeah. Well, in prep school, I used to play rugby. I couldn't play football. I was useless at it. Huh. I'd kick the ball and it would go over the goalpost. And yeah, like, yeah, and then you try to... Oh, yeah, no, that's right. Inside. You're supposed to be underneath. Yeah. <laughs> but the one thing I could play was cricket. Oh. So I joined <clears throat> in the summer term, was lucky because that was the cricket term, and I'd been playing cricket you know, since I was... As long as I'd been playing drums. I don't understand cricket. I really... The, the well, complexities of it and... Uh, I don't understand American football. Yeah. And I've sat there and people have explained it. it and I go, try. why do they keep stopping? And why are they wearing all that ridiculous shit? <laughs> try playing rugby. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my son played rugby three years in high school and he really, he loved that sport. We played yeah. football too. Does so he mean well, soccer? Or, oh, no. American, or, or American football. football. Yeah. 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 So you're right about sports. That is like yeah. the shortcut for being accepted. Yeah. That, and that still really to this helped. day, I feel like, yeah. Oh, I think so. 
yeah. So so the kids once they they knew that, and I was in the the cricket eleven. You know, I was the opening bowler for for the team. So um, that really helped kind of chill everybody. And, yeah. And then and then I would just I'd look at my watch and oh two o'clock. Excuse me, miss. Um, I got to go. We got a gig in Huddersfield to now uh, tonight. I said okay. Make sure you do your homework. Yeah. All right, miss. Thank you. Hey guys, I'll see you later. Pack up my stuff. Yeah. Walk home and um, pack my drum kit up. You know, yeah, so when yeah. did you go out on your own, though? When we, your um, dad's band, when did you leave that? Or what was the, well, how did that all go? I was in this band for four years. And um, <clears throat> during that time, I started doing the recording sessions as well. So I started getting experience of uh, microphones yeah. <laughs> and um, tape machines and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I had done a couple of other gigs with other bands just to get experience. People were starting to get to know me, and and uh, I think my dad maybe helped, and or maybe the it was the trumpet player in 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 the band. He said, "Let him come and play with me on Sundays at the yeah. Cafe du Paris or something." <clears throat> so I had a little bit of it, but then. <clears throat> Um, unfortunately, my dad, uh, he, he died very suddenly. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Right in the middle, we had a whole, things were actually getting <clears throat> much better for him. Yeah. He was starting to have a lot more gigs, a lot more broadcasts. Uh, it's a bit like the big bands are coming back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've heard that so many times. So many times. Yeah. But it, it, it did, there was a resurgence. He began to, to get popular. But, um, you know, it's such as life, and, yeah. and it took him, you know. Um, I had a decision at 16 years old to make, which was, what do you do with this band? So he was like in his late 60s he or mid-60s? 65. 65. Yeah, I'm too my young. age right now. Yeah, I'm yeah. way too young. There's yeah. a moment when you outlive your father that just sticks out, because I was my dad died when, I, when he was 60. So when I turned Ooh. 60, I spent a year trying to, it's very Oedipal. It's yeah. like very Oedipal moment of your yeah. father passing and you stepping into that role or yeah. are you, how do you measure up? Did you ever feel that? Um, <clears throat> or are you feeling it right now? You know, I've not really thought about it until recently. I brought, brought I've still up. got a few months to go. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to tempt fate, you know, you never know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and the, 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 the funny thing, and then this is not planned at all. So my dad was 49 when I was born. Turned out I was 49 when my son was born. Oh, it's just so strange. It's yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully that won't close off the same way. <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm enjoying things too much. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the decision was what to do with this Dixieland dance band, which by that time I wanted to play rock and roll. I wanted yeah. to play modern jazz. I wanted to play, uh, uh, you know, jazz rock. Yeah. I wanted to join bands like Yes and Blood, Sweat and Tears and Chicago. And oh yeah. I, I didn't want to play Dixieland anymore. But the other side was, uh, my dad was, uh, he was a beautiful clarinet player. He yeah. had a tone that only w would be like uh, very similar to Artie Shaw's. Yeah. And actually they, they knew each other and, and Benny Goodman too. Um, very different tone to Benny. Mm -hmm. It's a, a it's a fatter sound, less woody sound, and I mean, really quite uh, lovely. Without him, the band it would just be awful. 
Yeah. It just would be... There wasn't anybody to step into that part. Uh, They built the sound around them. It would be... Nah. So I said, uh, no, I don't want to continue with this. Now, that was a bit of a rough decision because not only was I putting myself out of work, I was also putting... You know, eight other musicians uh, yeah. out of work. I mean, a bit. They had other gigs, but it mean it meant that one portion of their, you know, livelihood w- was gone. Was gone. But the trumpet player who was really helped actually. But I, I actually interviewed him many, many years later. Yeah, I have it all recorded. Uh, it's quite stunning, actually. Some of the stuff that I learned, which I didn't know about. Um, and he was just uh, Al. His name was Al Winnett. Always a lovely man. And uh, he was like the second in command in the band. Yeah. And he stood by my decision. And he said, absolutely. What Even though that, he was the natural uh, heir to, to yes, organize the next band leader. He had his he had his band going. Yeah. He was doing it. And, and uh, he helped sort out all the good gigs that were booked. Yeah. And dish those out to other band leaders. And so, you know, it was, it, it was fine. And then the summer of 73... The year that Live and Let Die came out, Roger Moore's first James Bond movie. Oh, yeah. And I went on vacation for the f- almost the first vacation I'd had. Really? I mean, that's the other thing about being in the music business. You don't really take a vacation. Oh, because it's, when everybody else is vacationing, that's when you're working. That's right, exactly. Yeah. And the same for, for holidays, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes around Christmas, uh, any of those kind of holidays yep. those are the best gigs i grew up so and and even now to this day i forget why where is everybody yeah. it's labor day oh what does that mean i mean i know what it means but to yeah. me it doesn't mean a thing yeah i i'll, I'll still probably be working in the studio because I, I that's what i grew up with um but anyway on this i went on vacation with a school friend of mine and it was lovely it was like i don't know it was a it was a change i knew wow this is the end of this life, and now I'm starting my adult life. Yeah. And um, my and mom were you said, excited or a little uh, intimidated? Um, I guess intimidated because I was yeah. thinking, how am I going to get work? Yeah. I mean, I know that I'm known in the business a little bit. Yeah. But not really that, not Did widely. Your father's not, name opened doors for you? Maybe not in the world you were looking to not enter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was a difficult one. I was. I, I forgot to go. To, uh, I forgot to go to school for all that time. Somebody called me and said, "You going to come back to school?" I said, "Well, what's the point?" Yeah. <laughs> I think I took three exams. That's about it. I your O missed, levels missed everything. Now, I missed well, every you get exam. out of school and, at age sixteen in England, right? I think that was the way when I was there. You finish your O levels at age sixteen, and then you either take you go. go to your A levels or right. university track or not. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, there was there was no question about it. I mean, it wasn't exactly the brightest, <laughs> you know, um, in terms of you know that that academic academic. It wasn't yeah. really an academic. Um, my mom said. You need to go to work. Well, I'm, I'm as a musician. musician. No, she, she said you, to- you need to go and get some work. I said, but I'm a musician. Yes, but you're not earning anything. Go and get a job. So I, I got a job at an electrical store. Hmm, that's not so bad. It's not so bad because it sold hi-fi systems. Yeah. Now I have a great interest in things uh, of the te- technological nature. Yes. 
I built my mom's uh, part of her system and uh, played with tape machines because she had them. And so I spent most of my time trying to sell hi-fi systems to people. Yeah. So when somebody would walk into the store and ask for some Hoover bags, I go, could I interest you in a hi-fi system? Because I just wanted to sell it and then yeah. set it up. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, no. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever heard of Lionel Blair. Mm. He's a, he was a British, a great British dancer. And uh, his wife came in once and yeah. bought a washing machine. So I sold her this washing machine. And I said, can I sell you? A, no, uh, could I interest you in a stereo system? <laughs> and she looked at me like, what? <laughs> but anyway, I did, you know, uh, used to go around to people's houses that had actually bought the stereo system and set it all up for them and make sure the speakers were in phase yeah. and, you know, make sure the stylus was properly fitted. And uh, it was it was actually... So you felt like you were industry adjacent? Kind of. Music kind adjacent. Of, yeah. yeah. And I got to play records in the store too. I think yeah. the guy that ran it, he, he was kind of chilled. He was, he was yeah. cool. You know, he was kind of tickled by it, I guess. And then all of a sudden, I get a call. I get a call from a contractor who's the contractor for Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh. Which was in just coming up to the end of its first year at the Palace Theatre in London, Cambridge Circus. He said, could you come to an audition? I went, uh, yeah, when? Yeah. He gave me the date. He said, oh, uh, where do you live? And I told him, I said, oh, that's not far from me. I'll, I'll drop around all the, all the charts. So I went out, I got the record. He came around, I met him. Peter Owen was his name. I don't know why I remember that. He was a trumpet player. Gave me this whole big, thick wad of sheet music. Yeah. And he said, all right, we'll see you in three weeks or whatever it was. And I started learning the music. And of course, the the album is not exactly the same as the show. There's different endings and mm. different arrangements. So yeah. that's all very confusing. Well, wait, did you get to meet Andrew Lloyd Webber? Did he have to like sign oh, off on you or anything? No, he wasn't anything to do with, by that time. He had he contracted it all out. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. But, uh, but of course I did. Yeah. Uh, very soon after. The only story I've heard about him is he was famously difficult and he was at some party and Somebody, he, he went to his friend. He said, why, why is it these people don't like me? They had never even met me. And the friend says, it saves time, Andrew. <laughs> well, you know. To his uh, credit, he would tell that story often. Yeah. He, you know, Andrew was, uh, he was, well, he was great to me, actually. Um, long story short, what, what had happened was one of the keyboard players playing in the show used to play with my dad. Excellent. Dave Cullen. And they were not happy with the drummer. And he said, look. We got this boy wonder. Someone, he's very young, but he'll be able to do it. He could, he'll could. he be, be able to do it. So I went to the uh, audition and I got the job. Yeah. Did you find it challenging or was it right up your alley? It, of course it was challenging. Yeah. I've never done a West End show before. And actually, uh, another thing happened in the time, I think it was, I was, uh, they had to give the other drummer like three months uh, or two months um, notice. So I would go and watch the show and really, you know, learn it and do that. And then I suddenly got a call from the same contractor. He said, can you come in today and play uh, Joseph and his amazing color, dream, yeah. his amazing color dreaming coat? Technicolor. That's right. Dream Technicolor coat. dream coat. The drummer's had a car accident. He's in hospital. Ooh. I went. 
well, and this is all, this is like around 11 or 12, midday. I went, oh shit, really? So I got on the underground and uh, with a stick bag and um, met the conductor at the theater. I mean, yeah. he opened the door and looked down and went, uh, I'm Simon. Oh, well, um, come in. I mean, he's looking at me like I'm a, well, this happened a lot, by the yeah. way. People used to look at me, really? And uh, I sat down and we went through the charts, just me, like drums and conductor. Mm-hmm. And then I had to play the, the show uh, that night. It was the, uh, the biggest lesson I ever learned. And what was the lesson? Somehow I sight read this whole show, made very mm-hmm. few mistakes, got through it, and we were on the side of the stage, so all the cast could look over and they could see. And yeah. I, I noticed, you know, people were looking to little kid playing drums. What, what, you know? Yeah. So I went home that night and was feeling pretty pleased with myself. Yeah. And felt like as well wow. you should be. I was like, I can sight read. That's. I mean, a show like that. Mm-hmm. London West End show. And my mom the next day, so how did it go? I said, oh, it's great, fine. And went in for the second show. I made so many mistakes. I, I, I mean, I couldn't even understand it. Well, for, pe- for people to understand, <laughs> everything revolves around the drummer. If he gets off beat, everything just kind of collapses in on itself. <laughs> it can get really bad really fast. The cast were looking over and said, is that the same kid? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was the biggest lesson I ever learned. Yeah. It's not the first night, which is all, all, always, you know, nerve wracking. It's the second or the third night. Yeah. If you do too well on that first night, be careful. Because you're going right. to get a little yeah. cocky. You're going to get real cocky. And uh, so that was the, one of the biggest lessons I, I learned ever. Yeah. And I've carried that through to this day. <laughs> so, wow, you're just still in your teens playing in the West End, you know, equivalent of Broadway and having this uh, this opportunity. It must have yeah. just... Well, uh, that's really where it started um, because once you do that, you've got... And, and, and we have to remember, this is 1973. We didn't have drum machines. We didn't have mm-hmm. logic, yeah. computers. We couldn't make demos. The only way to make a demo was pick up a guitar play it and, you know, sing some words. And most people couldn't afford a tape recorder in England then. Yeah. So we didn't have little recorders in those days. I mean, we had cassette recorders, but even then, you know, most people couldn't, frankly, if you were a musician or uh, an artist, you couldn't afford that. So you would have to hire a studio and hire musicians. And I suddenly got, you know, hey, can you play on a demo? I'm recording tomorrow at the... KPM or whatever the studio was. Just a little demo studio. It wasn't like recording at CBS or Air Studios or EMI, which is everybody refers to as Abbey Road now. Um, And that's how I started getting my experience. Getting your chops. Getting my chops. And then you mentioned Andrew Lloyd. He came to see the show. Mm -hmm. I got a call from Biddy, his uh, secretary. He said, could you um, do a session on the 14th with with Andrew uh, at Olympic Studio One? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, what time? And then started doing sessions for Andrew and played on, um, um, oh gosh, what was the uh, brilliant film, movie, John Voight. Oh, uh, Coming uh, Home. The Odessa File. Odessa File, yeah. Played on the Odessa File soundtrack. 
I even remember the, the cue. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, Andrew was very good at writing these little, these little motifs. Little hooks. Little hooks. Yeah. And he'd always have something weird in the lineup. So there'd be drums, bass, like a double bassoon guitar, or something, and a harp. Yeah. You know, or his brother, Julian, playing cello. Yeah. It was hilarious. Um, and then we did Evita. We did the original soundtrack to wow. well, the original record. So many great songs. Yeah. So that's how uh, that's how I ended up working with Andrew and Tim. And Tim was like, Tim Rice. Yeah, great. He <laughs> he was the he, he was kind of the go between between Andrew and yeah. the musicians because he could say it in a way that wouldn't wasn't the so offensive off. and exactly cause yeah. them to storm out. Yeah. Because Andrew's very intense and very, you know, no, I want it like this. And Tim, uh, let me sort. Uh, hey, Joe, that sounded great. That sounded wonderful. Can we try it like this? Yeah. You know, perfect. That's how you get the musicians on your side. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, um, that was the start of all the recording experience. Yeah. And then the rock and roll lifestyle was lurking in the wings there. What was your first, like, I know you worked with Jeff Beck, which yeah. must have been, well, that was... It must have been something, because he started out as a studio musician himself, is that right? Not really, no. No? No. I thought it was him and Jimmy Page. That... No, Jimmy w was a studio musician. Okay. Yeah, no, Jeff, not so much. Uh, Jeff, I mean, basically, I, I'm really not sure what he did before the Yardbirds, but he was on the scene. Yeah. And, um, and then was pulled into the Yardbirds when, I guess, when Eric left. And then there was, a, I think it was a period when Jimmy and... Jeff played together in, 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 in the band for a short while. Um, it was obviously something I really wanted to get into. Yeah. Uh, but soon, it was very soon I started doing sessions with, you know, people that had played in such and such a band. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and I think, uh, okay, so uh, uh, the, the girl that played Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar mm -hmm. was a lady called Dana Gillespie. She was signed to Tony DeFries, who was David Bowie's manager. Oh. And Bowie and Dana were very, very good friends anyway. They'd known each other for years. And um, she asked if I would join her band. So I ended up uh, doing lots of rehearsals. We went into Island Studios and did a record. And that's where I met, um, oh, I mean, uh, John Porter, guitar oh. player. I used to play with Roxy Music and then produced, I mean, everybody. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bob Weston, who was, uh, used to play, I think he played in Fleetwood Mac for a little bit. Um, so I started meeting all these musicians. And it, it's a pretty small world, even yeah, though the cultural is. impact is enormous. Mm. The London scene, once you get into that, that studio scene, it, it, it is and has lots of tentacles. Yeah. You know, and then somebody might come in to do an overdub, like, say, Mel Collins. Mm -hmm. He came and did some uh, tenor overdubs on the album. He played the famous uh, tenor solo on uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Oh, you know, he played a lot of those uh, solos. He's playing in King Crimson right now. Wow. So so Mel, um, we, we, we kind of hit it off. And then, he, you know, I'm sure he probably recommended me to do a session or two. And then Rabbit, the keyboard player, John Bundrick, who's yeah. played in The Who for years now. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's, that's how you do it. You meet people, they do a session with you. They go, mm -hmm. oh, wow. It's you know, good. And then yeah. another recommendation. and Exactly. Yeah. Now, you're probably making recommendations yourself, people that you're oh, working wow. with. And well, yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I know you put, you've been 
playing with Jacob Sesney, who's a who's a hometown boy. Absolutely. Everybody watched him grow up and how I exciting know. to see him stepping yeah. into the fullness of his career. It's it's lovely to watch and and you know um having been through that, having been the youngest guy in the band yeah. for so long. And then seeing uh both Jacob who's who's in my new band and Alex um Alex Sill, who's a guitar player that yeah. Jacob plays a lot with. Um, it's just great to see them. Play. Well, you'd be the perfect mentor for them. Well, I think musically it works. It's the music yeah. they, they really enjoy playing. And um, it, it's funny. Um, I had a, a fast-forwarding to Montreux Jazz Festival in 1983. I was playing with Gil Evans and, okay. um, and also a band of mine called RMS with Mark Isham playing uh, trumpet. Um, and, uh, the, the day I arrived, uh, Claude Nobbs, who used to run the Montreux Jazz Festival, at the end of the festival, he'd always arrange a jam session yeah. featuring the people that had played. So the people that had played that, that evening were Freddie Hubbard, of which Billy Cobham was the drummer, mm-hmm. and Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Wow. I, and even then, I know that name. You know those, right. So... I'm having dinner somewhere in Montreux Village, and this guy happens to walk by and looks up and he says, I've been looking for you. Simon, we must go to uh, the casino and play. Why? And I've, I've already, I'm, you know, half a bottle of wine in. Yeah. And he said, Claude would like you to play with uh, Billy Cobham and uh, Art uh, Blakey, you know. And so I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, are you sure? And uh, my drum kit hadn't even arrived yet. It was coming the next day. Yeah. So uh, I went there. I knew Billy, but I'd never met Art before. Yeah. So I went, hey, Billy, how you doing? And he introduced me to Art, who looked at me like, you know, what's this? All right, kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I went out, and there was a drum kit that was there. It was a Gretsch kit, and I kind of rearranged it a little bit and gave it a little tune. I went, well, that's the best I can do. And out we went, and uh, we just started playing. And uh, it, finally, it actually uh, it, it came uh, onto YouTube. It's there. Oh, I got to check. I'll it's put that hilarious. up in the notes. Montro, uh, Art Blakely, Simon yeah. Phillips. I'll put that up in it the notes. It's hilarious. And it's actually fantastic. It was, it was lovely. But after that, Art grabbed me and Billy and went to his dressing room and he shut the door and locked it. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he gave us a good lecture. About... Professionalism or? He started off on Billy and he said, uh, basically, look, I'm getting old. I'm not here for that much longer. You got to take it over now. Yeah. You got to give that, pass, pass this on, pass this on to the young wow. players. And it was all like that. And then, and I'm looking at Billy, who's, you know, absolutely my idol. I mean, you know, I love his playing and his whole concept. And I'm looking at this, I'm going, oh, this is. Wow. wow. And then he looks at me and he goes, and you? <laughs> and he says, don't ever give up on the bass drum. Now, uh, I know that doesn't mean a lot uh, unless you're, you're a musician. Um, he could hear Art was stage left, Billy was center, I was stage right. We're playing straight ahead, so we're playing like a swing groove. Yeah. Now, Art, from his era... You would always play four quarter notes on the bass drum. It's called feathering. Yeah. Very lightly. As jazz moved into bebop, post bop, 
like Elvin Jones, they gave up that and started just dropping bombs. That's what we used to call it. He could tell. Just a full full note. Or just any of them. Lots of accents and a lot more explosive, you know. Yeah. So uh, listen to the Coltrane records with Elvin on, and uh, you'll hear the difference. Art comes over when Billy's... So we have a bunch of musicians on stage now, and we play the head, all three of us, and then first soloist plays, and Billy, we say, hey, Billy, you take it. Art comes all the way over and uh, says something to me for the next solo. Hey, you play this shit, you play. And I'm like, oh, okay. So... But in the dressing room, he, he said, don't give up on the bass drum. He could hear, he could hear I wasn't feathering the bass drum. Yeah. I mean, how on earth he did, I have no idea. But he well, could feel it. decades of listening. Yeah. yeah. And that was it. He, he said, don't ever give up on the bass drum. And explained a lot about it. And it was great. It was wonderful. And Billy yeah. was like, look at me with this big smile. And it was well, you're known for your techniques. Well... Perfect timing, which not everybody has. I do think you're born with that. I think you can get better, but just having that perfect rhythm, just, I bet you could just get a couple beats into a song and then go a few minutes and then hit right back on it, just like if the track comes back on, because it's going to yeah. be that beat is going to be playing in your brain the whole time. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is something you, you have to be... Well, it was drilled into into me by my father. Yeah. He was very specific. You had to play everything that was on the chart, nothing more, but yeah. time. Timekeeping was the most important thing. You're rushing. You're slowing down. Yeah. You know? So I got a, a good you know, discipline of that very, very early on. And then, of course, when we started, you know, started doing recording sessions, one of the most important things you had to do was keep time. We didn't use click tracks in those days. Oh. So you had to keep time. And if you if you did two takes of a song and the first part of the first take was great, but there were mistakes in the second, but the second take, the second half was really good, the engineer might want to edit the two takes together. Well, if they're at two different tempos, that's not going to work. No. As long as they're close, you know, so studio musicians, that was one of the, that was the prime... Because the prime directive. Yeah. you got to play in time. Now, and then you got to groove, too. Yeah. <laughs> you well, that's, the, that's <laughs> the part of it. you got to lock that lock in. Yeah. I saw uh, the Rolling Stones. I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it was in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it must have been the mid-'80s after I got back from England. But it was uh, Charlie Watts and Keith where you could tell something was going on. Yeah. And Charlie put his, he like dropped his beat and dropped his, not dropped, he just stopped for a second. And Keith was just like, just oh dear. going yeah. off. Yeah. And then everybody else got behind and, yeah. And then Keith finally recognized, oh shit, man, I'm way off. And he yeah. looked over at Charlie and he just <laughs> nodded his head. Bam, he just went right back into it. It was yeah. really something. Yeah. Because yeah. that whole band revolved around Charlie Watts in a way yeah. that I don't think people really appreciate. No. Yeah. No. He was the one that made that band. Yeah. So whatever tightness they had, that was him. Yeah. For he, sure. He was lovely. Charlie was a lovely man. I got to I got to actually tour with him once, yeah. which was great. 
and uh, we had a we had a great time. Is it like a fraternity of uh, drummers? Do you yeah. feel? Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, he uh, he actually. Um, so my house in, uh, in in England just before I moved to to the states uh, was out in the country near near Colchester, and I had a residential studio there. And Jack Bruce lived in the next village, mm. and he wanted to do some recording, so he booked some studio time, and he booked Charlie. And he booked a guitarist called Clem Clemson. Hmm. So they came and, you know, worked in the studio for a little bit. And I was, uh, <clears throat> I had a, a, an engineer, let him hit him deal with it. And, um, but Charlie, he said, um, where, where are your drums? I said, oh, they're, they're, they're in the cellar. He said, let's go and have a look. So I took him down to the cellar and we were looking at like snare drums. And he's so interested. He loved yeah. it. Absolutely loved it. It was great. Wow. We, we, had, we had a good time together. Actually, a lovely time. Yeah. He's, he's missed. Yeah. yeah. It was very, yeah. very sad. Very sad. So how did you get... I know now Toto, of course, is yeah. an iconic band. How did that happen? I mean, and also you get, you know, you're working here and there and doing all these other things. So it must have been like a big commitment to 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 take a job with a with a band that's on the road a lot and that had to be something that you had to think about that you had to make a deliberate choice um you know so but go, going back to the late 70s early 80s uh i was constantly asked to join a band of some sort yeah. whatever the band was in those days there were a lot of bands that were uh, like, like, for example, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. They were looking for a drummer. And so I got the call because they needed a drummer that started with P. <laughs> um, I had already worked a little bit with Keith uh, on another band with Jack Bruce and Steve Hackett, which never came to anything. Um, but I, at that time, this was uh, probably 85, I had kind of in a way, given up the thought of being in a band because my interest was in recording and producing. I had just started uh, producing Mike Oldfield and co-engineering, mm -hmm. co-producing, co-engineering. Um, so from 83 onwards, I started the production thing. Yeah. And uh, eventually I got my own studio. Um, it was something I was more interested in than being in a band, frankly. So yeah, the late Because 80s, of the control, you just have more... Um, or executive no no it's capacity. a creative thing it's a yeah. it's a creative it's a it's a uh, i i it's akin to well, I, I love making records yeah i grew up making records that's really what it was and at that point i just felt that's what i should be doing and i was engineering a lot back then and uh, i loved the arrangement side of music to me it was great having a, mm -hmm. a band or an artist and hiring musicians and, uh, you know, sorting out an arrangement. It was exciting. That's what yeah. I'd love to do. So I'd given up the, the idea of being in a band, basically. Yeah. And uh, I still did various... Gigs here and there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, in 88, I joined Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. uh, we did his, um, his solo. On, there was an album called Primitive Cool, which I played on. Then we toured Japan and we toured Australia. And then in 89, I joined The Who for the 25th anniversary tour. Wow. So we did that. But in between all that, when I was at home, I was making records. Yeah. 
And then that's fast very different than playing a stadium, I can imagine. Oh, very, very <laughs> different. Yeah, um, I and mean, it was great and absolutely wonderful to have that experience and play these huge places and play music every night. Yeah, and it was a long show too. It was like three and a half hours with the Who. Uh, so I got very fit. That yeah. was great. You don't get so fit sitting in a. Oh, I think chair. that's. I was going to ask you about that. Like you, uh, that's like a workout. It certainly um, is. That's yeah. like, like a, well, the Who is famous for their, the energy of their shows. And oh yeah, I've just I've oh, seen them half a dozen times. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you are absolutely wrung out just from listening to them. Uh-huh. I can't even imagine what it'd be like to be on imagine stage. Playing. It's pretty. It's pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was. It was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Um, fast forward to 1992. I had already. I, I'd had it with England. I, uh, the weather. Oh, just everything. I, I did a lot of work in the States, uh, records and, and uh, touring. I wanted to move. I wanted to move to California. Yeah. I was done with the, uh, you know, the rain and the mist and the fog and the, and the, the attitude. It's the attitude, really. Yeah. So I, um, I started working on uh, getting, you know, all the uh, work permit, and, which is is actually not very easy to do. Uh, most artists, most musicians are usually signed to a record company or a publishing company. Mm-hmm. So th- it's the publishing company or the record company that, that deals with all this. Yeah. And you get a, a visa which enables you to work for that company. And as soon as you change, then that's gone. Huh? Yeah, you see. So as a, a sole proprietor. It's like a indentured servitude almost. <laughs> it's... It, it, it's interesting. It it was actually quite complicated, and uh, I had two lawyers working on it, uh, a music business lawyer in New York and an um, immigration lawyer up in Niagara Falls who actually did mm. pretty much all the work permits for most of the British That's my, uh, my sold stomping grounds. Well, Western New York. Oh, Chautauqua. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, this guy, Howard, his name, Howard Kushner, he got uh, all the permits for The Who, Jeff Beck, I mean, everybody. Uh, yeah. you know, he was that the guy that everybody went to, and they figured out a way. Um, it took uh, it took a year to sort yeah. this out, and all of a sudden, in 1992, I receive a visa, get it stamped into my passport. I have a corporation uh, that's incorporated in New York, and I have all these papers, and I'm ready to move to the states. Yeah. The question was, when. And where? Did you already know where? Oh, yeah. I was going to yeah. go to LA. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, yeah, if I'm going to move, I, I, don't, I yeah. might as well really move. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't really know where I was going to go, but that's where I was going to go, somewhere in LA. Um, and um, in the summer of 92, uh, I heard, you know, very, very sadly that Jeff Picaro had passed away mm. very suddenly. A week later, I got a call from Steve Lukather. Wow. I was in my kitchen. It was about one o'clock in the morning. And the very next day, I was going to drive into London to record, which became my last record that I recorded in England before I left. It was Buffalo Skinners with Big Country at Rack Studios. Um, And uh, I thought he was just calling to chat. Just to chat. Because I knew Luke not very well, but we had played together on a Jeff Beck show in Japan in 1986 with uh, mm. with Carlos Santana and Buddy Miles. Wow, what a lineup. Oh, it was lovely. It was great. It was great. Um, 
And I thought he just wanted to, you know, chat. He said, uh, listen, I'm here with the Bamber at our manager's office in Ventura. Um, want to know if you come join us for the tour? Kingdom of Design. I went, and I didn't really know what Toto were doing at that yeah, time. Their repertoire. Well, they were, they were touring in Europe. Most of my work was either in England or the States. Yeah. So I wasn't really aware of where they were in, in mm-hmm. what they were doing, what they were up to, but it was a 42 date tour, world tour. Um, and I said, wow. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I've got to, you know, have a look and see if I can get out of doing these commitments. Um, he said, well, look, get, let us know as soon as you can. Because we've got 40 people on the payroll. We need to yeah. know whether to go ahead or not. It was pretty, I mean, it was pretty serious. So I started while we were working with the, on the Big Country album. Uh, we had a break. I'd get on the phone and call somebody I was supposed to do a, an album with. I said, look, I've just been asked to fill in for Jeff Beccaro on Toto's tour, which means I won't be able to do your record. And Surprisingly, everybody's reaction was very positive because they yeah. were all Toto fans. Yes, of and it was they were great. Huge. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that kind of helped with. But the also decision. the tragedy. Uh, they, yeah. They, yeah, they. Yeah. Really want to carry so, on, carry on. Yeah. So anyway, the the I said yes to Luke. They sent me the new record. They sent me a a dat tape of all the tunes they're going to be playing. I listened to it all. I love the new record. It was different to what I had imagined. It was it was much more rocky. Yeah. Uh, Luke was actually the main singer now because uh, mm-hmm. they've had so many you know singer problems in in the past. Um, and um, suddenly, I was on a plane, probably VS007 from London to uh, uh, LAX Virgin, and I armed myself with a bag full of batteries, a DAT machine, headphones, and loads of paper yeah and i said just keep the champagne coming i'm going to write all these charts down yeah i spent the whole flight uh you know writing charts and uh met the band that evening we had dinner which is you know it was a tough time it was a very for tough them, time i can imagine very tough time for them and luke you know luke was the catalyst yeah dave and mike were uh, they were in shock they were just in shock they, they they did their best mike did his best to it was his brother you know and he didn't really know much about me, actually. Uh, David Page did. Luke had played with me. But Mike really didn't. And he was probably very skeptical. Yeah. But he did his best. He a, was a lovely man, Mike. And he was very polite. And, you know, Page, he, I could see he was struggling. Because yeah. Page and Jeff, they started the band. It was their band. That's how it, it all came into beginning. And then um, David Hungate became the bass player and uh, they headhunted uh, Luke and they chose Luke and which was which was great and um, but Luke was the guy that he was the catalyst he he made this happen yeah he put aside you know all the I mean he was you know devastated too but he made it happen and um, I turned up for that first rehearsal boy it was it was something and uh, yeah. He said, what do you want to play? And so I actually picked one of my favorite songs of the, the band, Hydra. Hmm. Uh, and they went, we haven't played that for ages, but it was on the list. They wanted yeah. to do it. I said, right, let's go. And we, I counted it in and off we went and we started playing and they had 
three background singers. They had a percussionist. They had a second uh, a keyboard player, and and it sounded amazing. Yeah, I could tell these guys are just the time was just beautiful. And we finished the song, and there was a bit of silence. And Luke said, "I think this is going to work." Wow, that and, must have felt pretty yeah. amazing. And we only had, um, I could only make, I think, three weeks of rehearsal. And uh, it was the first time they'd ever played with another drummer in their ever. In, the, in that sense, yeah. in that setting. And while they're a global sensation, yeah, it That's... was. It was. Great. I didn't realize then that that would become my life for the next twenty-one years. <laughs> no. You were just, just signed up for this tour. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. they didn't know. They really didn't know what they were going to do. They just thought, well, we've got this record out. Jeff really wanted to make this album the album that would put Toto back. Yeah. And uh, he would have he would have wanted this to happen. And uh, of course. so and within like a week or two weeks, I remember we were playing Hamburg and we were walking. Mike and I were walking up the steps into that hotel that's right on the the lake in Hamburg, the Altersee, I think it's called. And he, we're walking in, in the lobby. He said, how do you feel about joining the band? I went, wow. So you think you're going to continue? He said, yeah, I think we are. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so it was Mike, actually, who first kind of planted the, the seed of that. Yeah. Which is great. Wow, that was quite a career with Toto, 21 years. But you're still doing your engineering projects and... Doing your own work, because your, your music is very, just it's beautifully composed. And I mean, you, you write parts for other oh, instruments yeah. that are just, just, I mean, the way it all comes together, it's really something. I mean, it's, I listened to Protocol 4 and 5. Oh, wow. And you were, you were, got a Grammy nod for 4, for four. is yeah. that right? Oh, yeah. And I'm hoping to... Uh, Get one, it, for five. It, get one for five. I hope so. <laughs> the wow. elusive Grammy, you know. Yeah. It's tough, you know. But, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the issues with being in a band, okay, so finally it was time to join a band, and I went, yes, I think this is right. I've broken those ties with England and all that work, but I was still uh, into the production side and the engineering side. Uh -huh. Did fact, that come in handy with Toto? Eventually it did, yeah, yeah, because, well, first of all, I designed a, Mike had this, uh, he had some equipment and he had a room, but it was all held together with jack cables. Yeah. And I said, Mike, I could design you around this equipment, a really nice studio and uh, I need a place to work. He said, right, you do it, then you can work here. So I did the whole schematic. I did all the wiring, um, which is what I do. I love doing it. That's my, that's my hobby. Yeah, sitting there with You're a soldering exactly arm. the opposite of me. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, I designed, you know, patch bays and did all the, you know, I've done this a few times now. Um, it's like my Zen and art of motorbike, or, you know, motorcycle. Yeah. And um, we started to record the first album, or my first album with a band. And so the new member, but recording is my, you know, I've owned a studio for years. And we're in Capitol Studios. We're work working with Elliot Shiner, who's been hmm. greatest engineers. Um, and I'm sitting there figuring out what what the band what who does what in the band. So they are the band are producing, but essentially it's David Page and Steve Lukather. So I have to figure out and work out right 
who does what? Who who's the guy that sorts out this side? You know, who is good with vocals? Who is good with technology and all this? And uh, we're sitting there. We're about to you know, get started. We've got a drum sound, and they uh, said, "Right, we need a click." And I just assumed that David Page would have had his tech. Well, we need it. I said, um, "Well, had I known, I would have brought my computer and my my rig." And he said, "Well, why don't you go and get it?" Okay. So I jumped in the car at Capital and drove back to the valley. Grabbed all my gear, yeah. filled up the car with all my equipment, unloaded it, set it all up, and connected to the you know because the tape machine uh, in those days would spit out some what we call SIMTI code. It's a mm. sync code that you have to run a a, a, a box that uh, gets it all the tempo produces a click, yeah. generates a click, and um, so that was the first thing. I went, ah, oh, okay. So it looks like I'm going to be part taking care of this side of the yeah, record making, the division of duties, it, exactly. And then, uh, uh, so it was a it was a learning curve. I mean, it it would be wrong of me to go in, even as a you know, I produce a lot of th- records, but I would have to just step back and see because they've you know they've made Grammy winning records yes i have to step back and see who does what and find out because obviously it's work for them yeah yeah and when i see a spot i go okay guys can i can i recommend something and i'll make a suggestion they go oh wow okay let's try that you know just i don't know what it might have been it might have been a suggestion for some backing vocals or from tracking some guitars or just some different ideas that maybe i'd learned from a different place in the world, you know, or yeah. working with different people. Slowly, uh, I ended up engineering the band. Wow. I recorded uh, Falling In Between in my studio in uh, in uh, Sherman Oaks. Uh, well, I have a question I wanted to ask you. I forgot to put it down on the list, but when I imagine what goes on in a studio, I don't really have any idea, but I saw that movie Love and Mercy, the, oh. the Brian Wilson movie right, with right. the wrecking crew. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah, and I just, yeah. is that like what it is? It just seems that that was just, I just love that film. I just loved yeah. it. And the studio scenes are really the heart of the movie when he's, yeah. Brian's genius becomes so evident and you yeah. can see the wrecking crew people, which was like, you know, so phenomenal. Every great record of the, that oh, era. Yeah. And Glenn Campbell Hal, among them. Yeah, Hal Blaine. Yeah. Uh, and the lady's Carol name Kay? was so good. Carol Kay on bass, yeah. I seem to remember. Uh, oh, yeah. no. Uh, but was that accurate? Did you um, uh, feel like they well, did? Well, okay. Good, so it's like any job. it's any movie that you see that is uh, a, about a profession that you know about. Yeah, you're going to pick holes. It, it's, well, it, there's all, there's so many things you see. You go, huh? <laughs> no, that yeah. wouldn't have happened. Um, and, but they have to, they have to condense it. Yeah. Everything so much is, is so condensed. It doesn't happen that quickly. Yeah. No, it takes hours. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, uh, but, but, but it gives you the right idea. Um, Probably the positioning of the musicians isn't right because it's really hard to use a camera in a recording studio when mm-hmm. people, you know, people are sometimes quiet. in different rooms, you know. Well, also yeah. the Beatles uh, documentary that Peter Jackson put together. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I really, oh. really do want to see it. I mean, yeah. I remember I, I worked a lot in that studio, Studio 2 in EMI. Yeah. So I know the studio very well. Um, well, that's something I, definitely to look forward to. Yeah, then. I do 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 want to see that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, 
everything is just condensed. That, that's the thing you have to remember. And certain things are made for the for the movie. But it gives you the idea. Yeah. Um, what it the doesn't spirit give of you it. is the reality of it. Like, there's something wrong with my phones. Yeah. Can somebody replace these? You know, yeah. 10 minutes later, right? You can't have that in a movie. No. And what, in those 10 minutes, everybody takes their headphones off and starts Chatting rapping about on. something else. It's yeah. hilarious. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Phil Ramone, who was uh, one of my favorite producers, I got to work with him on a few live projects, but I only ever did one record with him. And at the time, I didn't realize that he had actually engineered some of my most favorite most favorite albums. They wow. were they were big band albums. Quincy Jones. Wow. Duke Ellington. I mean, that's where he, he started. But I didn't realize because he was always in a producer uh, yeah. scenario and he always had an engineer. And um, Frank Filippetti was the engineer on this. Oh, but, just a, not to interrupt, but you uh, didn't get to Dizzy Gillespie, who's a band leader. Roger Calloway, piano player, lives here in Ohio. Oh, yes, right, right. So that's like this link to this whole yeah, era. With that era, it's really yes. great for yeah. great for that. So it's lovely. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, uh, back to the studio. So Phil, all right. So Phil is producing Paul Simon, <laughs> and they're trying to cut a track called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover." Oh yeah, and it's not happening. It's just not working. Uh, Steve Gadd was the drummer on the session and um, everybody was in the control room and Phil was talking to Paul. Uh, how should we, what, what can we do about this song? I, they're trying all different feels and they can't figure yeah. it out. And um, Gadd is just doodling on his drums. And he uh, was in the army. He was an army drummer actually for a while and he was in the army band. So his... A lot of his uh, playing is very uh, technical, very rudimentary. And he was playing this, he was just messing around. But the monitors were turned down in the control room. Yeah. So they, they could hear something going on, but they, but they could talk over it. And Phil, something caught Phil's ear. And he leant over and he turned the monitors up and he could hear what Gad was playing. And it was this lovely kind of slightly military groove, but mm -hmm. but a real lovely groove. And Phil said, that's it. Yeah. That's the song. That's the groove of the song. And Paul goes, what? He said, yeah, let's try it. And there's the final yeah. take of uh, well, is is there, Lover. Do you know, like, is there a moment when somebody's just noodling around with a bass line or something? Or Absolutely. And then it's like, oh, yeah. my God, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's another. In fact, uh, it's like a lock in a in a key. One of the greatest bass players on earth, and most bass players will agree with me, is a man called Anthony Jackson. Hmm. It was his who's, birthday yesterday. Yeah, and I uh, spoke to him. It was absolutely lovely to to speak. We did a lot of work together with with Hiromi. Yeah, and other stuff. He was Hiromi. in he was in Protocol for a short while yeah. too. So, um, and um, he turned up to this session. OJ session, Gamble and Huff, and uh, they didn't, really didn't have very much. And uh, either I think Huff went up to him and said, uh, uh, "Anthony, we need a we need a baseline. What can you give us?" <laughs> and so he's messing around. Then he hits his chorus pedal, and he comes up with that insane, beautiful baseline. Yeah, which is for the love of money. 
Isn't that amazing? So that mm. happened. Yes, there's a lot of accidents that happen. And that's the one thing which I think is a shame about today's recording. When we were all in a studio together, beautiful accidents would happen. Yeah. And when I'm producing, hopefully there's the, I try to always get involved with something that has a budget that we can hire musicians, put them into the studio. We have a beautiful studio here in, in Ohio called Carbonite. Car, car, uh, Jason Mariani. Yes, Jason. Yeah. yeah, he was an amazing engineer, and uh, they—he was—I uh, mean, he saved me through um, when I moved here and uh, after the fire. Um, he was just wonderful. He, he, well, let's talk about the Thomas fire because yeah, you lost everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it. Must have been just devastating. All these years of the, your gear and and memories and everything yeah. just. Um, yeah, I was actually, I was on tour. I had just finished six weeks in Europe with Protocol 4. Yeah. So that's uh, with Greg Howe, Otmar Ruiz, and Ernest Tibbs on, on bass. Um, we flew from Zurich to New York. Uh, oh, we had a lovely time with customs in New York. Such lovely people. <laughs> totally different from uh, LA customs, by the way. Same country, different laws. How can that happen? Yeah, it's uh, anyway, called that, federalism. Oh, they they just yeah. they saw us and they went. Oh, they, and I actually had an argument with with the customs guy, but I had to be careful because yeah. you know they could detain me for a while. Um, but it was just stupid. Anyway, so we 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 uh, we got to New York and we played our first show at the Iridium in New York City, and uh, that was uh, December fourth. And and then uh, I knew what was going on. I was getting you know texts, and uh, and then I got a call at four a.m. in the morning from one of my neighbours. Said, "Hate to tell you, but uh, your house is gone." Oh, must went, have been what a gut wrenching feeling. I, I just I didn't even know what to do. Uh, we're supposed to play a whole U.S. tour, and I thought I'd better get back. So. Um, I, uh, I was up early and I started booking tickets because, you know, I was kind of running the band. And, uh, I didn't have a manager at that point. I was yeah. doing it all. So booked tickets for the band to get everybody back home and um, uh, went to the club. We were packing up everything, obviously, because, you know, they, they understood. Um, and um, landed in LAX, could see fires all over LA, oh, yeah. at, you know, flying over it. Um the, uh, had someone pick me up. They drove me through past the uh, the, uh, the museum on the four or five. Come the on, uh, Reagan Reagan yeah, Library. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, which uh, we drove through. Oh wait a minute, museum on the four or five. The uh, Getty. Getty. Thank yeah. You. Getty. Oh, brain. Getty Museum. Um, and we drove over that that hill and just coming down into the valley and only. A few an hour later, that was all ablaze too. Yeah, um, and um, it was surreal. Uh, I couldn't actually get back to the house for a week, um, and when I did, um, I mean, it, it, it's stunning. I'd never experienced that before. I, I didn't see any of the fire. I, I missed that and the sound, yeah, the noise, which I hear was just the roar, everything. Yeah. It, there wasn't. I had two bathrooms in the house. Couldn't find a bathtub. Couldn't find a faucet. Couldn't find a basin. Ceramics. I melted. Mean, got melted. Evaporated. 
That um, is unbelievable. The, I had a little piano in there, had a Yamaha upright, just loads of coils of strings, and, yeah. the, and the actual harp itself, because that's cast iron. Uh, uh, one, I had a fridge in the, in the guest house, which was going to be the studio, um, and a fridge in the, uh, in the kitchen. The, nothing left of the fridge in the, in the, uh, um, in the, what, what was going to be the studio. I had three sets of speakers heat. set up, which means six drivers, six 12 inch drivers. Well, uh, two eights, two tens, two, two twelves. I could only find one chassis of a driver i found my computer the motherboard it was kind of all it was so weird i, I touched it and it just disintegrated the drive <laughs> i took picked just up ash. the drive and it just went oh it was yeah but the, the one of the weird things was so everything in the kitchen I mean, it was a, where the kitchen was was obviously you know everything destroyed i found one cappuccino cup which I brought back from the Tokyo Blue Note, intact, wow, with its handle on. So you have it in a place of honor now, I imagine. Yeah, it, it's um, a memento. It's so weird. How did that survive? Yeah. Not well, much, I, not I had a uh, uh, guest just a couple of weeks ago, Micah Milano, mm-hmm. and his wife. Oh yes, Nomi. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah. did that Burning Ohio documentary. Oh yeah, yeah. He was. We were talking about his new film, which he'd been working on for ten years, which. That put him back years because, you know, the devastation of that fire got burned yeah. as well. Yeah. It was just yeah. Yeah. really our cultural memory is going to be shaped around that fire. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it was <clears throat> it was the start of many other fires, huge fires. The Wolsey yeah, fire. that was the largest fire in California history. Yeah. Now it's five years four? later, nine. It's oh, number nine. Oh, wow. It's like a Isn't that fire hit night, you know. It's, oh God! It, it, no, it was. Um, What's left to burn? You wonder. <laughs> oh, it's just—it's the world changing. Yeah, it's know? crazy. It's, Speaking of the world, <laughs> um, Romy, we got to talk about her. We're, yeah, we're, you've been very generous with your time, but I can't let you get out of here without talking about this. Right. This sensation. Hey, this. Yeah. Yeah. This Romy is just her performances are so electric. Yeah, people right. feel changed when they come out of there. Yeah. Do you feel that when you're <clears throat> on stage with her? Um, like this? I have to say, <clears throat> it was probably some of the best uh, musical moments of my whole career and some of the most fun. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the background story, if, if, if you don't mind. Yes, um, please. I was in my studio in Sherman Oaks. I was actually mixing um, a live record for Toto. We had just done a tour in Europe. We'd videoed it, and I was uh, mixing the the music for it. Um, I had to go somewhere, and so I turned the monitors down, switched the lights off, got in my car, locked up the studio, and I was in the car, and the phone goes. And this lady comes on and said, Hello, my name is so-and-so, and I manage Hiromi. Do you know who Hiromi is? <clears throat> I had just watched, somebody had sent me a link to a YouTube video, which was Hiromi and Chick Corea. Oh, my God. And both David Page and Steve Picaro had just come around to the studio to do some fixes on the, on the live uh, uh, tracks. 
And I said, guys, I want you to look at this. And I played them this and they were just, their jaws were on the floor. It was stunning. And this was only like the next day or the maybe two days later. So I said, yes, I do know who Romy is. And, <laughs> funny you uh, ask. <clears throat> funny you should ask. I said, well, she would like you to play on her next album. I went, really? And uh, I just thought, how's that going to happen? And said, and uh, Anthony Jackson will be playing bass. I went, oh, oh Anthony and I go way back. Really? And I said, this, wow, this sounds great. Uh, okay. And uh, I, I asked her, I said, um, you do realize kind of the, the kind of drummer I am and my, the kit that I use? She said, oh, yes. She's seen you play. She, she knows exactly who you are, blah, blah, blah. I went, okay, great. So uh, fast forward to the recording and uh, she sends me this music, which is ridiculous. Yeah. There's no other word. It's ridiculous. Um, very Ridiculously difficult. sublime is a, is a word. <laughs> I mean, these charts are like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we record and, and it was absolutely wonderful. And then it was the start of a six year, wonderful six year ride. Yeah. We had so much fun. Um, both just the three of us and a sound engineer. And, um, it was really lovely. It was, uh, she's Japanese. So she's very quiet. Anthony. Not on stage. Not on, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and Anthony, who's also very quiet. And when I'm traveling, I'm pretty quiet too. And it was great because we're in a we're at a hotel. We've got to get to the airport. It's five a.m. We get into a van, suitcases, whatever, and we sit. Then you know, like five a.m., you don't really want to talk that much. Yeah. And there was never any pressure to have to converse. Yeah. The total dichotomy, total opposite to Toto. Even at five o'clock, hey, you know, it's, and I'm like going, oh no, I just want quiet. I just want yeah. some peace. And it was great. It was absolutely lovely. Socially, we had a, we had a great time. And on stage, it was, it was fireworks. Yeah. I'm going to make sure to put a link up because I'd really want people to, to hear yeah. this music. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And Seems, there's lots of videos uh, of, uh, of that yeah. band. It's, on YouTube. It feels like she's starting to get the, credit she's due to get her oh yeah <clears throat> known no, the way she should be i just she like is. yeah really one of my wishes <clears throat> is that we will get to play in a project again together yeah would really love that i'm I sure know. many many people would love that as yeah. well yeah all right, Simon, uh, we're coming up on an hour and a half. What do you say we... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I tend to... No, that's awesome. Thank you so much. You know, one of the advantages, and this is Brett Bradigan, uh, just thinking out loud, of doing this podcast is just having so many fascinating people come together. And I know I've said it before, I cannot imagine a town of 7,500 people in which you can have so many guests. It's like episode 111. And my list of potential guests just keeps getting longer. But one of the things I'd like to figure out how to incorporate into this podcast is some of the conversations that happen afterwards, which are just as interesting as what goes on to the podcast. And Simon Phillips and his broad range of knowledge about many things besides music just made for a fascinating post-podcast conversation. So stay tuned. I'll try to figure this out. 
In any event, it's Brett Bradigan signing off. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.